I want to welcome you as well. Just introduce myself uh, for those of you that I haven't met yet. My name is Rob. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I know we have a lot of folks that are new this time of year. We want to thank you for being with us. As Mandy has already expressed, you know, we're entering into what I consider the most important week of our uh, spiritual calendar, our church calendar. Uh, This week, anticipating Easter... And what we want to do here at Fellowship is to give you all opportunities to really enter into that and not just have Easter spring up on you unprepared and have it sort of fly by. Uh, That was my experience growing up. I grew up in a church very similar to Fellowship. It was a great church, a wonderful place to grow up. But one of the things I felt like I missed out on at that particular church was the richness of the buildup of this season that some other traditions and some other cultures do very, very well. So for me, I remember thinking I'd wake up one morning, I wouldn't even know Easter was coming, and my mom would say, put on the clip-on tie, Robbie. And that was my signal, it must be Easter. If I'm wearing a tie, it must be Easter. I'd put the clip-on tie on, put my boots on, and go to church, be more crowded than normal. And I thought, great, it's Easter. This means I get the Easter basket when I get home, and it's going to have the candy and the little plastic grass in it that then gets all over the house and drives my mom nuts. So that was kind of my experience with Easter. I'm exaggerating a bit, but I, I don't remember having kind of a significant sort of um, spiritual concept of Easter. I knew what it meant, but it wasn't a really significant, important holiday for me until I got much later in life. So my wife, Jody and I, when we started having kids, one of our objectives and goals is to say, how can we create Easter in the minds of our kids for them to have memories and traditions and richness of spiritual uh, input in them so that they come to understand this is the most important day, uh, spiritually speaking, on our calendar is Easter Sunday. So what we started to do about six or seven years ago was to say, let's walk through the life of Jesus in his last week, following him along Sunday, Palm Sunday, which is today, all the way through Easter Sunday. And we've developed some traditions around that, some things that we do that have become very special to our girls. And I want to invite you to kind of start developing that rhythm yourself if you've never thought about doing that, whether you have kids or not. Uh, This is a chance for us this week to really follow Jesus in his footsteps as this whole series has really been about the walk that changed the world. So let me tell you some resources we've made available for you to do that. On your way out in the vestibule, uh, please pick up one of these. It has the title of our series, The Walk That Changed the World, Following Our Savior to the Cross, Grave, and Resurrection. Michael Easley wrote this a few years ago, and we've printed additional copies. Uh, There is a reading and a little devotional guide for each day of the week leading up to Sunday. And uh, this will just sort of inform and also enrich your time of preparation this week. So grab one of those on your way out. We also have a packet that we've made available for families. If you have children elementary age or younger, pick up one of these. Your Your child will not get one of these automatically. We only have available one copy for family. They're in the back table right as you leave the glass doors in the back left corner. Uh, Connie or someone else from our children's ministry will be there. So grab one of these. Inside this, you will find a little chart you can put on your refrigerator or a wall. It's got a space for each day of the week. And there's some stickers in here that you'll put on the the day and color it. And then there's a devotional reading in this little guide in here that you can read each night with your kids over the dinner table or wherever it is that you choose to do that. And it'll give your 
kids an opportunity to begin to anticipate what Sunday is really all about as we follow the footsteps of Jesus through this week. A couple other things I want to mention about uh, the, the significance of this week. Friday, we are going to have a Good Friday service at 6 p.m. right here in this room. We've put a lot of time and energy and prayer into asking, God, how would you lead our congregation to observe the day uh, of your death, of, of the, the day of the cross? And so we've made and kind of um, designed a service that will be reflective, uh, somewhat meditative. Uh, it won't be a big uh, high praise service, of course. It's going to be a little bit more reflective. It'll also be participatory, not in the sense that you'll have to say anything, but there'll be things for you to do and things for you to experience here on Friday night. I think it's going to be a, a very meaningful and rich time for us together as a body. There will be child care provided, but only for first grade kids and younger. And by the way, you do need to register and it is filling up. We only have so many spaces available. So if you'd like to come and you have children, a first grade or younger, please go online today or tomorrow at the latest if you can uh, and register them. We'll keep that registration open all throughout the week as long as there's space. You won't be able just to show up with your kids and check them into child care. If your kids are second grade and older, feel free to bring them into the worship service. I think it'll be a meaningful service for them as well. The older kids, uh, we're looking forward to Friday night. We hope you're able to make it. And then a week from today, of course, Easter Sunday morning. We have three services here at Fellowship Franklin, uh, the first at 8 o'clock, the next at 9.30, and the final at 11. If you haven't picked up tickets for those, uh, one of those services, please do that. You don't have to show your ticket when you show up next week, but it helps us to kind of gauge who's coming where. And uh, w- if there aren't tickets available for your service of choice, please try to come to a different service. Uh, I heard a rumor there may be some availability at 8 a.m., so we would love to, love to have you there. In fact, let me say this about 8 a.m. We're not offering child care during that time. That doesn't mean if you have kids, stay away from 8 a.m. It means if you want to experience Easter worship together as a family, 8 o'clock is your best time. There'll be plenty of room for you and your kids. You're welcome to bring your kids into other services as well, but I think 8 o'clock may be the best time for that. Or if you don't have children and you could be here at 8, that would be a, actually a blessing to the, con- the rest of the congregation. As I, as I know, we're going to have people sitting and standing in the back as we do even a little bit this morning. It'll be much more so, even with three services next week. So we're looking forward to this week. Hope that you'll enter into it, join with us as we kind of walk through the the final footsteps of Jesus leading to the cross and then to the empty tomb. Well, this morning is week three of this series, and uh, Lloyd, two weeks ago, started the series off by explaining and describing the moment in time when Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem and started his journey, his final journey knowing that he was going to be killed, knowing that he would be crucified in Jerusalem, and yet he set his face like flint, resolute, determined to carry out the mission that his father had given him. And then last week, Eric talked about one of the men that Jesus met on the way to Jerusalem as he passed through the city of Jericho, Bartimaeus, a blind man who really exemplified for us what we're going to talk about this morning by crying out to the Savior, Have mercy on me. Save me. And Jesus asks him, what is it that you want? He says, if I could have my sight. And then the way that that um, text ended last week was after Bartimaeus was healed, what does he do? He follows Jesus on the journey. The journey where? To Jerusalem. This was the walk that changed the world. And we'll see as these pieces come together, culminating in next week's celebration, how indeed this journey of Jesus changed the world. If you have your Bible this morning, I would like you to turn to the passage that was already read to us by Amanda. It's in 
the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. This is the triumphal entry, right? This is Palm Sunday. This is the text that is being read this morning in churches across the world. The triumphal entry of Jesus. Now you might ask, why is the sermon titled, To the Temple, if this is the triumphal entry? Well, did you notice that that's where Jesus goes once he enters the city? Now why did he go to the temple? Well, if you read tomorrow's devotional and follow along in this family guide tomorrow, you're going to see that on Monday he cleansed the temple. He tossed out the money changers there that were not worshiping, but were actually robbing and stealing from the people. But I also think Jesus went to the temple on Sunday, not just to check things out, but, but sort of a representation and symbol of he's presenting himself at the altar This is where this journey is going to end, is Jesus offering himself as the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. This was Passover time. So I think his journey to the temple was very significant. Well, we want to talk about this entry this morning, this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. And as I prepared this message and was just laboring over it, I realized, honestly, I don't think I can cover much more than one word. And, And I felt the need to do a deep dive into this word that we associate with Palm Sunday. So what's the word that usually comes to mind when you think triumphal entry or Palm Sunday? We've already sung it. Hosanna. Hosanna, That's it. So I want to talk about the word Hosanna because honestly, until I started digging and researching it, I didn't fully understand what that word meant and all that it carried. And then the, the deeper I got, the more I realized this applies to us. Like I need this word right now. I think we all need this word right now. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's back up just a bit from the actual word Hosanna. And I want to reread verse 8, which describes the response to the people of Jesus entering the city, riding on this donkey. Verse 8 of Mark 11. Invite you to follow along uh, if you have your Bibles with you. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Now, what's, what's going on? We'll pause there for a minute. Why would they do this? Well, obviously, this is sort of the ancient equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. Um, but what you need to know about this act of laying down the branches and, and laying down the, the coats, and of course, they were waving branches as well. That's where we get the idea of Palm Sunday or Palm Branches, is that this was reserved for royalty. Right? So you didn't just do this for anybody. You didn't do this for a celebrity. You did this for royalty. You did this for a king. Now think about a minute the cloak that you have on, the coat that you have on. Back in that day, this was very precious to you. It was one of your most valuable possessions. You, you probably only owned one, maybe two if you were wealthy. You would wear this cloak Every morning in the cool of the hours and in the evening and in in the the cool of the hours. And then when you would travel anywhere on the road, you wore the cloak so you wouldn't get dirty. So you wouldn't get dusty. This was a very dusty, dirty road. All the roads were back then. So to take this important possession that's so intimate and important to you and lay it on the filthy, dust-filled, manure-filled road, why would you do that? Well, only if you believed that it was more important for your coat to get dirty than the feet of the animal that the king was riding on. So this was a very intimate, very um, 
actually provocative act for these people to lay down their coats, lay down their branches. They were saying something about Jesus. Now, why did they suddenly start proclaiming him as king, right? That hadn't really happened up to this point in Jesus' ministry. Well, the culmination of two things. Number one, some very important miracles had just happened late in Jesus' ministry. So you remember last week, Bartimaeus was healed. That was a prophecy of the Messiah that he would give sight to the blind. Uh, you remember, uh, you, you know from hearing um, sermons about this in the past, that Lazarus had been raised from the grave recently. That had just happened probably a matter of weeks before this moment. So word was getting out that Jesus could actually be the promised Messiah, who is king in the line of David. And so this is why they respond to this. But there's another reason I think that's even more particular to this moment. I want to read to you a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was written hundreds of years before this moment in time. Now, who chose the animal to ride into town in? Jesus, right? He sent his disciples on an errand to go get this donkey. By the way, how'd you like to go on that errand? You know, just sort of, whoever asks you, you know, why are you taking our personal property? Just say, the Lord has need of it, right? I was thinking I might try that out sometime this week, right? (laughs) You borrow your BMW, the Lord has need of it, right? (laughs) So Jesus sends his disciples on this mission. He chose the animal, Don't you think Zechariah 9 was in his mind? In other words, Jesus was essentially allowing, intentionally setting up this scene so that the crowds could get a glimpse of his true glory for just a moment. He was allowing them to sort of glimpse his kingship. Now, it's a humble animal. It's not even a full-size donkey. You can just kind of imagine Jesus who would have been a strong man riding on this young donkey. His feet probably would have been about dragging at the ground. It would have been a kingly scene, but also a humble scene as well. He's the servant king. Humble, and yet very much in charge. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and then the people start shouting, and they start calling something out. I want to reread verses 9 and 10. This is what they said. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. I will come back to that word. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, to understand these words, you have to understand the historical context that these first century Jews were living in. They were in their homeland. They were in Jerusalem. And yet, their nation was occupied. Their land was occupied by a foreign power, a brutal empire, Rome. They didn't have freedom. Rome only allowed them a certain degree of freedom to worship the way they chose. Rome only allowed them a certain degree of freedom to travel from one place to another. You can imagine what it would be like if in our nation, if we were invaded and overthrown by a mighty foreign power and restricted what you could and couldn't do and what you could and couldn't say and how you could and couldn't worship. This is the environment that they're in. Now, this was common in the history of the Jewish people. But there was another generation of Jews that this particular generation of Jews resonated and related to most closely. It was the generation that was enslaved under the Egyptians. They always looked back to that rescue and forward to the promise that God would send another rescuer, the Messiah. 
Now, this particular week was building up to Passover. Passover is one of the most important festivals in the Jewish calendar year. It is at Passover that they specifically remember the exodus, the freedom from the Egyptians, where God miraculously intervened on their behalf through the leader Moses. Passover was a looking back, but it was also looking forward to their salvation. And and there was this this saying that they would always say that, that perhaps next year will be the year that we will celebrate Passover in freedom in Jerusalem, the Messiah having come, and our circumstances now changed, us now released. So this was sort of this, this expectation. You can imagine if we were living under the oppressive rule of some foreign nation, what it would be like for us every year as the 4th of July approached, right? It's Independence Day, right? It's July 1st, it's July 2nd, it's July 3rd, and we, 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 we can't light off the fireworks because we're in, in, enslaved, Yet again, this was the mindset of the people as Jesus was entering in. They were desperate for rescue. Now, why is that so important to keep in mind? Because to fully understand Hosanna, you have to understand their desperation for a savior, for a deliverer. The quote that they shout out in Mark 11 is actually from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was one of the psalms that was recited and sung all throughout Passover week. In fact, our equivalent would be like a Christmas carol. You know how, you know, oh, come all ye faithful, or angels we have heard on high, or silent night. You just know these words you haven't memorized. That's how Psalm 118 would have been for them at Passover. It was one of their holiday songs, one of their Passover songs. And I want to read to you. In fact, I invite you to turn, if you have your Bibles open, turn back to Psalm 118. It's about right in the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalm 118. And I just want to read 24 through 26. And while you're turning there, I'll I'll say it this way. Every man, every woman, and every child in this Hebrew context at this moment in the first century would have had these words memorized. They all would have known them. And they all would have known what they meant, what they were pointing to, what they were looking back on and what they were pointing to, because this is a psalm of deliverance. And so listen as I read uh, verses 24 through 26 of Psalm 118. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Sound familiar? That phrase, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, kind of became a greeting, a welcome during Passover. And it came from Psalm 118. And what they were proclaiming in this Hosanna word is essentially a cry for deliverance. Now, where do we see that in the text? Look at verse 25. You see the words, do save, we beseech you. Or your translation, if you're not reading from NASB, it may say, please deliver us, or please rescue us, or deliver us, please. It's a phrase consisting of two Hebrew words. And I've got to tell you the two Hebrew words, and you'll see why in a minute. Okay, so, so some of you just, you tune out when we start talking about Greek and Hebrew. Don't tune out, all right? Just, just hang on. So the, the first Hebrew word is, is hoshia, hoshia. So could you just say that after me, hoshia, 
Hoshia. That means deliver or save. It's a request. It's a command. It's a plea. It's a desperation. Hoshia. And then the second word is the short Hebrew word na. We would spell it N-A. And it simply means emphasis or, or please or just kind of a guttural. Just save us, please. We beseech you. That's where the NASB gets that idea. So you put those two together. Hoshia na. Repeat those after me. Hoshia na. Hoshia na. Say it again. Hoshia na. Say it a little quicker together. Hoshia na. What does that start to sound like? That's Hosanna. That's where we get Hosanna from. And by the way, it's the only place in the Old Testament where those two Hebrew words are used together. Psalm 118. This is where we get Hosanna. This is where the first century Hebrews were getting Hosanna. So it doesn't mean praise you, although it came to mean that later. I'll explain. It more means save us. That's what Hosanna is getting at. Save us. This is the word you would cry out if you fell into the deep end of the pool and you can't swim. Hosanna! Come! Rescue! But then from the centuries between when Psalm 118 was written to when Jesus arrived, something interesting happened. As this phrase in this psalm was quoted over and over and over and again in Passover, people looking back to their salvation and looking forward to Messiah that was promised, thinking maybe this is the year, Hosanna also started taking on the idea of praise. So it's not just a plea of help. It gradually also became a cry of hope that our Savior is on the way, maybe even this year. Hosanna. So by the first century, Hosanna didn't just mean what you'd cry out in the pool when you're drowning and you see no hope. It also meant what you cry out in the pool when you're drowning and the lifeguard is diving in and is making his way towards you. Say, Hosanna, yes, come, rescue you of confidence that I will now be saved. So, so that, that's what's packed into this little word, Hosanna. It simultaneously means help and it means you are my help. You might think of it this way. It's a prayer and a praise put together. Now, I want us to think back, or actually move back to Mark chapter 11. And now that you know what that phrase means and what it carries, I want you to think about what these people were saying as they shouted to this one riding on the colt of a donkey fulfilling Zechariah. Hosanna, save us, please. We're oppressed. We need salvation. And at the same time, Hosanna, he's the one. So save us and praise you. That's what's happening as they're singing. So what about Hosanna in the highest? It's a recognition that the only way salvation is going to come, the only place it can come from is the heavens. They're that desperate. Hosanna must come from the highest heavens. That's The rescuer must come from there and this hope that he now has come. So the crowds were shouting the right thing. Given the moment in time, this triumphal entry moment was the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Hundreds of years, generations of Hebrew people longing for this moment. This moment had come. They were shouting the right thing. The problem was, by Thursday, they weren't shouting that anymore, right? They were shouting something different. Their hosannas became crucify him. 
And what happened in between, that's one of the things I want you to enter into this week, even in your own heart, is how is it that in each of us, sometimes our Hosanna can turn into, where are you? You can't be the true king, the true rescuer. I wouldn't still be stuck. This is what happened to the people, and they turned against Jesus. They thought they needed a political and military rescue. They thought that their deepest need was literal liberation from this Roman power. And yes, that was a need that they had. But they didn't see their deeper need. They they didn't understand they had a need more urgent. We learn from Luke's account of this scene that Jesus was actually weeping as he was entering into Jerusalem. Listen to Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you'd only known this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. These crowds, these Hebrew people had invited Jesus to be the savior of their circumstances, but they didn't cry out, save me, Hosanna, when it came to their own spiritual blindness. They, they needed to take a cue from Bartimaeus, who saw Jesus as the son of David and said, have mercy on me, I wish to see, open up my eyes. This was the tragedy of Palm Sunday. So there's both triumph as the king enters, this grand moment in human history, but there's also tragedy that the people were blind to it. Triumph and tragedy of this day, this morning that we remember. Now, what does any of this have to do with us? Uh, it's easy for us to think those people just didn't get it, right? We, we get it. We knew why Jesus was coming. He was going to die. He was going to raise again. It was really about a spiritual oppression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet I think there's actually something important for us to learn from this crowd. And particularly this word they were shouting. They knew what they were saying. And they were saying the right thing. And I actually, as I've thought about this, I've thought, man, wouldn't it be great for us as a congregation to actually grab onto this word again and bring it back into our context. In what ways do we need the Savior to save us even right now? In what ways do we still need deliverance? Do we still need rescue? In fact, I'll say it this way. You might think that this word, Hosanna, is possibly a word that could revolutionize your spiritual life. I'm not trying to overpromise. I'm not trying to be one of those like, hey, just say this and magical things will happen. It's not about just saying a word. It's about the attitude of your heart. I think this word Hosanna creates a posture in us that's the exact posture that our whole walks with Christ should be defined by. Now, where am I getting that from? I'm getting it from the idea that it's both simultaneously a desperate plea for salvation and at the same time, a confident cry of hope. It is at the same time a prayer and a praise. Hosanna says, I need help, and I believe you, Jesus, are my helper. Hosanna says, you can help me, so please do. Hosanna is simultaneously desperation and confidence, a longing and hope, a cry of anguish, and a shout of faith. 
Now, what might it look like for us to take this concept of Hosanna and bring it back into our spiritual realities even today as we look back on this Passion Week this week? Two things I think we must be willing to do if we want this posture of Hosanna to define who we are, and I think it's the right posture to have. We need to recognize our need, and we need to bring our need to Him. And I want to talk about each of those. We need to recognize our need. And we need to bring our need to him. In other words, we need to say, I need help and I'm taking my need to you. I'm trusting you with it. The people knew they needed saving, but they didn't recognize what kind of salvation they really needed. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? I'd ask the question this way. What do you believe you need saving from? Uh, there are a few categories of people in the room, and I just kind of want to just name this. And I think everybody in this room is going to fit in one of these three places. Uh, first of all, some of you are dead in your sins, and you're not even aware of it. Now, by that, I, I, it's not a judgment or a condemnation. I'm not saying that you're more sinful than anyone else in this room. I just mean, spiritually speaking, you are what Scripture would say is dead in your sins. You may be religious, you may not be religious, but you don't have a relationship with God that is alive. Why not? Why don't you have a relationship with God that's alive? Because you're like the people in Jerusalem that Jesus wept over. I, I want to reread a phrase that Jesus used as he was weeping. He was talking about these people. He says, you don't know the things that make for peace. Some of you in this room this morning, spiritually speaking, you don't know the things that make for peace. You don't know that your sin has separated you from a God and that there's absolutely no way you can come to him apart from a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. And that's what the walk that changed the world is all about. That's what we're going to enter into on Friday and then the resurrection on Sunday. This Easter season, you could come alive. And all it will take is for you to put your trust, your faith, the work that Jesus did was because you needed it and you couldn't do it on your own and he did it for you. He was your substitute, your atoning sacrifice, your Passover lamb killed in your place so that you could be raised to new life. There's another category of people that probably describes a lot of us this morning. Uh, some of us don't feel the need to be rescued anymore. Uh, at some point in your life, you, you realized that you need Jesus to forgive your sins so that you can go to heaven, and that's true. But since then or outside of that, you're pretty competent. You're pretty in control, or maybe you can fake it pretty well when you're not. Uh, this is usually so subtle. Uh, oftentimes, people in this category can even sound humble. But deep down, you're kind of thinking, I, I, I suppose I needed to be rescued. You know, maybe not as much as some people out there, but yeah, sure, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But by and large, I kind of think God's a little bit lucky to have me. If this category describes you, even in just this season of your life right now, in a deep down, subtle, maybe hollow kind of way, you're not feeling desperate, then I'd say you're experiencing your own kind of spiritual deadness. Not separation from God deadness. That's impossible because you have put your faith in Jesus. You're saved. End of story. But a deadness that's more like a lack of vitality in your relationship with Christ. Most of us try so hard not to be needy. 
We expend so much energy and time not being like one of those needy people. You know what Jesus has to say about that? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, he said, happy are those who know they're a mess. That's what that means. He said, blessed, happy are those who know they need to be rescued. Blessed are those who can call out with integrity, Hosanna, save me. Not just one time, but I'm just, I'm a wreck, I'm a mess, I need your grace. Not just once in my life, but every hour of my life. Now, some of you are there already. You brought in this morning a neediness because of life circumstances or just an own personal brokenness or some relational dynamics going on. And I want to tell you this morning, you're in a good place. You may be thinking, Rob, how can you say that? You don't know what I'm going through. This is terrible. I'm not comfortable. And I would say, you're probably not comfortable. Following Jesus never is. God is near to the brokenhearted. Every time in Scripture someone cries out to God from a humble heart, he responds. Bank on it. Jesus responds to Hosanna. You know, I heard one person put it this way, Jesus comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. If you are willing to recognize your need, then there's only one place for you to take it, and that is to bring your need to him. So I want to spend our last few minutes here talking about what does it actually mean to bring your need, your neediness, to, to just recognize you are needy, because we all are, y'all. We can fake it all day long, but deep down, we don't, we don't have what it takes to be righteous. And not just in the sense of being righteous to get into heaven. I'm talking about to be acceptable by God. We need to be hourly dependent on our Savior. And honestly, if we're real with each other, our lives can be messy. And that's okay. Those are the kind of people Jesus wanted to be with. Messy people. Broken people. So what does it mean for us to bring our need to him? Uh, we, we try to get our needs filled in so many other ways, don't we? Uh, we try to make our neediness go away. We, we try things to numb the pain. We distract ourselves with too much entertainment. We make ourselves feel better to get what we want. These things become our functional saviors. Let me ask a question. What happened to the crowds uh, when Jesus did not give them what they wanted? They turned on him. And I think what that revealed is they really were looking for a savior that they could shape in their own image. Jesus will not allow that. For many of us, I think a first step is to realize that the kind of rescuer we actually want doesn't look too much like Jesus. The kind of rescue we really want doesn't look like a poor man on a donkey who is riding to his death and asking us to follow him. What we want instead is a quick fix. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be in pain. We want to be comfortable. We don't want things to kind of wreck our sense of serenity. We want to follow the victorious Jesus who comes to trample our enemies and fill our households with bountiful blessings and make our pain go away. That's not what Jesus promises in his first coming. That's what his second coming is about. We can look forward to that. We can have hope in that, but that's not now. On this walk that changed the world, Jesus invited his friends to follow him. Follow him where? 
Follow him to the cross. Follow him to tears. Follow him to weeping. Follow him to loneliness and loss as they experienced this with him. And sometimes we're too quick to jump to Sunday, right? Hallelujah. Raised, risen from the grave. I think you and I today, between Jesus' first and second comings, we're kind of existing a little bit between Friday and Sunday. You understand what I mean? In other words, we look to Jesus who's been resurrected, but we're still anticipating a time that we will be. We've been made new spiritually speaking, but we still struggle. We're still messy. We still have broken relationships. Things are not right in this world, only in the world to come. So how might you bring that level of neediness to Jesus even this week? I think it means to invite him to be present with you in your brokenness. Just to allow him to be present with you in your fear, to be present with you in your doubt, and your questions, to be with you in your anxiety and your depression, to be present with you in your loneliness. Allow him to hear your cry of desperation. I think it means saying to Jesus, I will not require you to fix this now, but I'm no longer going to ignore that I'm desperate. And I'm certainly not going to turn to these other things and people to try to make the pain go away. That's not their job. I think it means saying to Jesus, I'm trusting in you as my redeemer, in you as my rescuer, in you as my true hope, not just for salvation eternally, but I need now. I need your presence. I need your hope. I need you to be my savior, even as I'm falling apart in desperation, crying out, Hosanna. It's to say, like Peter, Jesus, where else would I go? You have the words of life. I think it's to even say, like Job, God, though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. To follow Jesus means to recognize your need, even to the point of desperation, and then stay close to the one who promises one day, one day, to fill it. So do you recognize your need this morning? Are you desperate for deliverance? And will you take your desperation to the true Savior, the true rescuer who longs to be present with you and will redeem all things in his timing? The way we want to end our service this morning is inviting you to respond to this with this word, this key idea of Hosanna. And as, as you say and then sing, we're going to do both. We're going to shout it out and we're going to sing it in a minute. As you shout out and sing Hosanna, I want you to remember what this means. It means a, a simultaneous plea for rescue and also a confident hope that you're calling to the right one, that you're putting your trust in this salvation, not in any other salvation. What I thought we would do is read some statements that I think characterize our need today in this room 21st century evangelical Christianity, Franklin, Tennessee, 2015. What are some of the needs in the room? I've got my needs. You've got your needs. I wrote out about 10 that I thought we might resonate with together, and I'm going to read them one by one. And every time you hear me read one of these needs, I'm going to invite you to call out. This will all be on the screen. Call out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Lord save us. That's the only phrase you have to remember this morning. It'll be on the screen. Stand with me. 
stand with me. I'm going to read these one by one. Grab on to the ones of these that describe your need this morning and call out to God in desperate cry for rescue. Our Father, we need your peace because we tremble with fear. Hosanna, Lord, save us. God, we need your grace because we feel helpless against temptations that habitually overtake us. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need your rescue because we have become captive to things that steal our joy. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need to hear your voice because we have wandered from you and have become utterly lost. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need a deeper sense of your forgiveness because shame clenches tightly around our hearts. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need you to strengthen our faith because sometimes doubt invades our hopefulness. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need your word to break through our hardened hearts because we have been deceived by voices that deny what is true. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need your spirit to comfort us because we ache with grief and loss and loneliness. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need your love to reassure us because we are insecure, anxious, and uncomfortable in our own skin. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need you to recreate us because on our own we've made a mess of our lives. Hosanna, Lord, save us. And finally, we need your mercy because our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Our Father, we pray, we plea, we ask. And Father, my prayer is even we begin to sing that idea, that word, Hosanna, that our cries of desperation would turn to cries of hope, that we would see you on your way, that you'd be present with us in our need, in our brokenness, in our neediness. We bring it to you. We cry out. We look to you now. We look to you this week. We look to the hope of the resurrection. In your name, Jesus, we pray.